the House come to order if members can take their seats. This budget is a huge job maker, and the number one solution to economic insecurity is a job. Hungry children can't learn, and it's our responsibility to try to help. Equality and opportunity. I believe most people are here because they want to do some good. The 2023 legislative session is winding down in Olympia, but we're not even close to running out of capital ideas. Welcome back. If you're new here, Capital Ideas is the podcast where members of the majority Democrats in the Washington State House of Representatives sit down at the Capitol and talk about ideas. This session's big ideas involved affordable housing, workforce development, climate resiliency, transportation, and always, always education. That's where better than half the state operating budget gets put to work, and it's by far the largest government-related activity in Washington. So it's appropriate that today's visitor to the Capital Ideas studio here in Olympia is Representative Sharon Tomiko Santos, longtime chair of the House Education Committee. Sharon Tomiko's 37th legislative district is in Seattle and stretches north from the southern city limit and takes in pretty much everything between Lake Washington and I-5 all the way up to Madrona. You'll find the Central District and much of the International District in there, as well as Columbia City, Rainier Vista, Rainier View, Rainier Valley, that's a lot of Rainiers, and Seward Park, the home of a few bald eagles and a whole lot of feral parrots. We're going to talk about education for the next half hour, specifically the pre-K through 12 kind. You'll also get to know a lawmaker with 25 years of institutional knowledge, someone who someday in the future is going to leave a long and proud legacy as a true giant of public education. We recorded this over the course of two hectic days in the last week of the session, and it starts now. I have the honor of sitting here with Representative Sharon Tomiko Santos of the 37th District. She is one of the true veterans here in the State House of Representatives, been in this place since 1999. So that, to me, comes out to be around 24, 25 years. How are you doing, Sharon Tomiko? I'm doing great. This is an extraordinary place if you're committed to making a difference in people's lives. I've been looking at the arc of your career here during the last 12, 13 biennia, you've done a whole lot. You are the chair of the House Education Committee. You have been for many years. As I was doing my prep for this, I came to the realization that really you are the prime authority on education. Uh, Maybe I should say on pre-K-12 public education in the state of Washington. I want to hear from you right now the state of public education in Washington today. We'll get into some history and some predictions for the future. But right now, how are things going? I think this is a very interesting time in public education, in part because, as we know, our entire uh, globe is still trying to make its way out of this global pandemic, which certainly affected every aspect of our lives. And certainly public education was no exception to that. And I think that that's one of the things we have to remember is that public education was as much affected as the work environment. And we all know the work environment is going to look completely different in the years ahead. Part of the question that I ask myself is what can we do right now 
to support and sustain that very tender growth that is coming out of the pandemic, both so that we can stabilize public education, but also position public education in a place where we don't have to hold on to our old-fashioned notions of what is education. One of the ways that the pandemic affected public schools is just the fact that kids for the last three school years have been having something that nobody alive today has ever had to deal with, which is remote education, isolation from their peers, probably never getting to really establish a relationship with their instructors because all they know them as is a picture on a screen. You're hitting on some of the challenges that we're facing in public education today, which is, yes, academic progress is important, but just as we acknowledge the physical body's needs, that hungry children can't learn, children who are sleep deprived because they did not spend the night before in a bed, it might have been in a car or underneath a bridge, they cannot learn. So too, children who are faced with a tremendous tectonic sort of impact to the emotions and the psyche of their parents, of their parents, peers, of society in general, have absorbed all of this. I'm constantly reminded that I'm the daughter of uh, two Depression-era babies. My father is still alive. And he continues to practice behavior that he learned. It was impressed upon him when he was a young, young child growing up in a Depression era. He was born in 1928. Stock market crashed in 1929. He continues to be very frugal. He washes paper cups. He doesn't throw anything away. And we have to remember and extend the grace and the support to our young people today that is similar in our way of understanding that their lives are permanently impacted, whether we like it or not. If we deny it, we're not going to help our children. So we have to understand that our children are impacted, even if they don't show it. And I would argue that point because we have never seen such a high rate of suicidal ideation among our youth at such a young age. But what is more heartbreaking is not just the suicidal ideation, Dan. It is, I learned a term in K-12 committee, which I hated to learn, which is suicidal completers. Hmm. Yeah, that's a tough phrase. I think that adolescence is the period in life, at least it was for me, where your feelings are the most intense and tend to shape a person as much as anything. Little kids are certainly affected by what's been going on. Ten-year-olds are affected, but 15-year-olds have got to be feeling this to their very core. All the changes that have taken place in the last few years, just as we're tend to, all our lives, think the best music we ever heard is the music that was playing when we were adolescents, even if it was terrible. Oh, Um, that's not true for my era. (laughs) Mine was the greatest also. (laughs) But those are the things that we remember, and those are the things that really, when we look inside ourselves, regardless of our age, that's who we see, is that person. And, And this is a tough situation. Rather than focus on the fact that that's how it is right now, I want to ask you about what's it going to be like in five years. 
what are you looking at when you plan next session? I know you're doing se- your interim planning right now, and you're planning for the 2024 session and beyond. What kind of things are you looking at? One of the things that I really strongly believe that we have to do in the legislature, our job really, is about creating the conditions in which learning and teaching can thrive. And one of the very important takeaways from this COVID experience I hope all of us have um, embraced is that we have to be, as human beings, as attentive to our social, emotional, behavioral health as we are often to our physical health. And certainly that's true for our children and where that plays into what does education look like in five years or 10 years is moving more and more to what we call the whole child approach. Now, I don't want anyone to think that what I'm advocating for is the teacher provides all services from soup to nuts. That's crazy. Uh, But what we have to recognize is that it's not just about English language arts and math and science. It is about understanding uh, empathy. It is about understanding how do you communicate well with one another? How do you build a team and work well together? It's all of the attributes that recently the State Board of Education developed when they identified the profile of a graduate. So you know that we have a multiple requirements for high school graduation in the state of Washington. One is that you complete 24 credits uh, of coursework in certain arrays that have been prescribed, and others to develop a high school and beyond plan. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about that. And the third is a pathways program. And that's been, of course, the subject of legislation this year, which uh, I think is often misunderstood. But the other piece of this is the profile of a graduate. It's all of those attributes that both students have demanded, their parents want to see in their children, but they may not necessarily know themselves how to, for example, develop uh, financial literacy skills in their young person. It's what employers are asking for. And Truthfully, Dan, if we want to have the kind of civil society where we have a full democratic participation with a small d, then I think we also need to pay attention to those civic behaviors that we are encouraging in our young people. But going back to the high school and beyond plan as uh, one of the pieces that is going to move us forward... The High School and Beyond Plan has been around for some time, and it's intended to begin in the eighth grade. And it's where both the student, very important, the student, along with the parents or family members, as well as members of the educational building, the partners in education, really engage that young person in in asking, what is it that you would like to do with your your life in the future? What are you skilled in doing? How can we help create an academic day that allows you to, one, explore your interest more deeply, but also help you develop those transferable skills that whether you're going to be an athlete or an astronaut, you're going to need these skills. 
we so often silo and compartmentalize every occupation to need X grouping of skills without recognizing uh, actually those skills are really transferable. And if you engage a student where they are, where their interests uh, lie, then you will actually teach them some of those abstract concepts without them even knowing. Take geometry, for example. If I wanted to be an athlete, I would want to know, how am I going to hit that ball on the backboard so it actually always gets into the hoop? But if I don't want to be an athlete and instead I want to be a master chef, I'm going to need to know how do I convert recipes that are only designed for five people into 50 Those are kinds of examples that uh, perhaps involve math concepts, but that's what I mean by engaging the student. They're still getting the core academic content, but you're feeding it in a way that they can absorb and actually understand, and that's one of the keys that's missing. Now, pathways, it's often misunderstood. So pathways really grew out of the whole No Child Left Behind era as an alternative to the consistent pen and paper testing regime that really so many students, including me, don't do well in. Um, And instead, rather than denying that a student actually knows the material and can demonstrate that they know the material, they uh, can either, as so many students do do, Uh, pass a test because that's what we've taught our students to do in our K-12 system is we've taught them how to pass tests, not necessarily measure what they know and what they can do. We have other pathways such as CTE, which is really commonly accepted as a hands-on application of core knowledge, again, math, science, at least uh, reading and communication skills uh, associated with English language arts. And it's a way to demonstrate, I know this material. I can show you how it's applied. And unfortunately, there are still too many people, both in the legislature and at large, who believe it's somehow lacking in rigor. Well, it's only lacking in rigor if you are lacking in imagination, because I would argue uh, that um, if a student is able to develop a complete symphony for multiple instruments, that student is not only showing musical talent, that student is showing incredible math talent. And leadership. And leadership, absolutely. I want to ask you a question about high school and beyond. You talked about essentially a team of people who are responsible for helping that teen to shape themselves. And I wonder how much communication goes on between the different parts of the team. Are are teachers now, I know that teachers have a lot to do now, more than they used to. Are they working with individual students' parents and the coach, if that student happens to be an athlete maybe, or the band director or whoever. If so, how do they have the time to do this for every student? It just seems like there's so much on their plates already. I think you absolutely hit the nail on the head. Is um, and, and in fact, it's one of the reasons that we did adopt legislation this year around high school and beyond. Because while this has been a high school graduation requirement in Washington State for many years now, 
we also know that in Washington, as in every state across the country, the value around local control looms largely. And, uh, and it's an important recognition that every community is different and that there may be different opportunities in every community, but every individual child still has to have the full breadth of opportunity to explore their specific interests. So in my committee, we often talk about our motto, which is to be student-centered and success-focused. How does high school and beyond help every student do that? And now we're going to begin part two of this podcast because due to the fact that the legislature has some pretty stringent time demands, we needed to cut it off right after those last words you heard from Representative Sharon Tomiko Santos. Welcome to part two. Sharon Tomiko, we were talking about the fact that teachers at this point in time, or particularly with the added activities of high school and beyond, have a whole lot on their plate. And you were talking about the fact that local control is important, which I assume is a lead into how maybe this is different in various parts of the state. It has been, but with the legislation that we adopted earlier this session, we are moving forward with a common statewide platform for high school and beyond plan. And that will allow us consistency and hopefully common understanding of how to move forward with a quality high school and beyond plan. So we will begin with a common statewide platform that begins in the eighth grade that helps direct the student with input uh, and consult from the family, with counselors, with teachers, with members of the community to guide the student's high school years in a way that comports with the student's ambitions and visions for him or her or their selves, um, both through high school and beyond. Now, the vision that is in the high school and beyond uh, legislation we recently adopted is that we will continue to preserve the local control, that local flavoring, if you will, by creating a platform that is much like if you consider your current computer, that you have a base operating system, but then you can buy applications to add to that base operating system to feed what your interests are, whether you are a movie streamer or you prefer music or whether you're a gamer or you're an artist. All of those things are all available to you as the consumer, but they all operate on one of a couple of common operating platforms. That's the way we should be looking at the high school and beyond henceforth is a common approach to how do we begin to plan. Once we've adopted that, then we can begin to have more and more of the adults in our society and in our communities throughout Washington state better understand how do they support each and every student in their community, recognizing that, first of all, we begin with the student, his, her, or their interests. We engage with the families. We also work with the high school counselor 
who uh, very traditionally has operated as, uh, or functioned, I should say, as sort of that career guidance individual, but recognizing that our counselors also can use help from the community. They don't know necessarily every occupation that is out there. And one of the truths that we are trying to get at with our high school and beyond plan is this. We don't even know the kinds of jobs that our students today will be competing for in the future. And so to limit our visions to just what we know today is actually doing a huge disservice to our students. The other thing that we know is that whether we are talking about the jobs that are currently available and will continue to be available into the future, or whether we are talking about whatever the next big trend of workforce needs might be in the state of Washington, that there are common transferable skills that cross the core subject areas of math, English language arts, to be sure. But as important, you might recall, I talked about the profile of a graduate and what are those dispositions? What are those soft skills, if you will, that every student, every graduate of a Washington State high school should not only be taught and have opportunities to learn, whether it's in sitting in a classroom or using hands-on applied experiential learning through apprenticeship, through internship, or community service opportunities to understand what it means to work as a team, to understand how it is that you can be a good communicator, what are the gives and the takes that one can learn to acquire in the way of skill building when you are negotiating a contract or whether you are negotiating priorities for how you move your team forward. So um, the high school and beyond plan is, I hope, going to change the way school and community engage with one another so that rather than in silos, we work collectively all to support the students who are in our schools today. It sounds like a wonderful plan, and it sounds like a really optimistic plan because it obviously does involve the cooperation of so many different people, um, many of whom maybe have different skill levels and different interest levels. But I applaud you for doing this. And this takes away my next question that I was about to ask you, which was, The legislature rarely just sets up a program and puts it in motion and then moves on. And so I was wondering what the latest tweaks might have been to high school and beyond. Now I know. And because I'm a simple person and I like to simplify things, it seems like one of the keys to high school and beyond, or really to education, is learning how to learn, particularly given the fact that we don't know what we're going to need to learn in five years. So you can't teach that. You can teach a person how to learn. I don't know that I was taught that when I was in high school. I don't know that I've learned it yet, but it does seem like a real key skill in a society that changes about every 10 seconds. Oh, absolutely. And I I think that uh, you, you hit on another piece that's very important to recognize, Dan, and that is we continue to teach students the way that you and I were taught, the way that my parents and your parents were taught, the way that many of our grandparents were taught. In other words, we continue to teach in the United States of America in the way that we constructed the schoolhouse in the 19th century. 
and it is based on that industrial mechanized version of inputs and outputs and that if you input X number of raw materials, in this case we're talking about children, uh, and uh, then you give them all the same learning, then the expectation is they will exit from the system with uh, exactly the same level of skills and abilities and expertise. And the fatal flaw in that is we're not talking about raw materials that are static. We are talking about raw materials that are dynamic, individualized, that are uh, shaped by uh, very unique circumstances in their lives and in their families' lives. And yet we put them all in a very static, universal, uniform education system. And then we scratch our heads and wonder, why is it that they're not all coming out evenly with the same level of skills, the same preparation for the jobs that we broadly have envisioned and deemed to be the most important? Well, one, we've completely eliminated any individualized, personalized aspect of the student's motivation itself. So the broader vision, actually, Dan, for what's in store for education in Washington, in my greatest hope and vision, is that we will have a fully-fledged, mastery-based education system which recognizes the individuality of every student, which still teaches the commonality and the universality of some of the core concepts, but we also recognize that not every student learns the same way. And while rote learning may have been good for Socrates or others, it's not as good for students today. And we can't teach those skills that we will need for a creative, innovative economy if we don't teach them to be creative, to use their own creativity, to think up new ways of looking at the world, new ways of responding to the world, and new ways of communicating to the world. And that is also why this new High School and Beyond plan is so very important, is that we will be able to begin to recognize that Dan Frizzell is an excellent communicator. And maybe Dan needs a little more time just to put his thoughts down in writing. But boy, when you give him that extra time, he is going to be the best communicator that you could ask for. But we have to give him the extra time. We also have to give him the opportunities to not only learn, But frankly, the best teacher of all is failure. To fall on your face and be able to dust off your pants and say, let's get up again. And what did you learn from that, Dan? What are you going to do differently? And right now, we do not have that space for that type of grace in our education system. It sounds to me like we're going to. I really do, at this moment, feel pretty optimistic myself having had this conversation with you, and I could listen to you talk about education for a long, long time. I've been listening for years, and I feel like I have been learning the whole time. 
At this point, because I know that, again, our time is limited, I would like to shift to the 37th Legislative District, the district whose constituents looked at you and said, Sharon Tomiko, go down to Olympia and do good things for us. What good things can you look back on, and this is not a career retrospective, what do you look back on that you see as having been some achievements that have helped your neighbors, and what's going on now? Thank you for that question, Dan. It's hard to not apply a lens of retrospection, given that I've been here for some time, and the legislature I entered looks vastly different from the legislature in which I currently serve. It's gone. It's gone. And I think um, for many reasons, I think it's a good thing because I feel that today, while we still have more work to do, I serve in a far more representative legislature than was present in 1999. And so when I think about what are the things that... I feel especially proud of that, whether it was me or whether it was in concert with my colleagues and our community, probably the most important thing in my view is using my position to amplify the voice of communities of color who have been so historically marginalized and alienated from this process. That is is not something that you could even imagine anymore. But historically, that was the case. And so when we, in 2008, uh, we were finally able to put a little bit of money into the budget so that we could turn around and give it to the commissions, the different ethnic commissions, with the direction, go forth into the communities that you represent, engage with the communities, and ask these simple questions. What are your dreams for your children? What's standing in the way of those dreams for your children? And what would you recommend that we do to eradicate those barriers. That was the beginning of the establishment of the Educational Opportunity Gap Oversight and Accountability Committee. That is a statutory committee. It was the first of its kind in the nation. It preceded the federal law and recommendation and report called For Each and Every Child. And through the work of the EOG OAC, we have been able to hold state agencies accountable, We have been able to hold school districts accountable. We have been able to hold the funding and the practitioners uh, uh, of every stripe, whether they be a policymaker or whether they be an educator or a principal or a superintendent or a board member accountable equally for educating our students. And I think that while their work continues, There is a mindset now in the legislature and certainly in my committee that each and every student does count. You know, talking about the members of color in this caucus, there is a members of color caucus, which constitutes almost exactly 50% of the House Democratic Caucus. And I'm thinking back to when you joined. I had just been here for a year or so, and I believe that that caucus could have met in this office very comfortably this at small point office. in time. Yeah. And it's a small office. You probably, I don't know if you remember, but MOCC started 
actually, we started meeting in 2003, but because there are so few people of color, and at that point in time, so few LGBTQ plus individuals, we actually started meeting as the unity group. And the idea was to start saying there are things that we share in common, uh, that we experience in common. There are things that are uniquely things that we experience as people of color or as LGBTQ or as other otherized persons. And so it really is back in 2003 when we first made the effort. Um, You might recall I was a member of leadership at that point in time, and we were able to not only have it have the imprimatur of leadership, but we also had staffing from the very beginning for this effort. So, And I think that that's a credit to the House Democrats. I don't know that there's a good place to end this podcast because I, I love talking to you and I love listening to you, but I think we have to at this point. I appreciate you, Sharon Tomiko Santos. I always have. And thank you for being on Capital Ideas. I think we are certainly the richer for the fact that you gave us about a half an hour, even though it was divided up into two parts. Well, it's my pleasure. And it's always good to see and to speak with you, Dan. You're a good friend. And I'm grateful for that. Thank you. I've had the privilege of hosting this podcast for 15 years, and this was one of my favorites. If you got anything at all out of it, you really ought to subscribe to Capital Ideas. You can do that by visiting the House Democratic Caucus website at housedemocrats.wa.gov and hitting that media button up at the top, or by going to Apple, Spotify, or any of the big-time podcast aggregators. This is your state government, and what happens here matters. I'm Dan Frizzell for the Washington State House Democrats, putting people first since 1889. Thanks for your time. <laughs> <laughs>